Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC Radio, I'm Kai Wright. Good evening. And I'm Anne McElroy from The Economist. We're your hosts for this night of Indivisible. We're live on over 160 stations around the country, and we're going to be here Monday through Thursday for the first 100 days of the new presidency. We'll be talking with and listening to you. And on Mondays, we're going to be doing a couple of things. The first is we're trying to bring global context to this American political moment. It's a presidency that presents a sharp change in America's relationship with the world. So that's why The Economist, a weekly newspaper with a global outlook, has joined the party. And we're also asking you to join the conversation by sharing your own life experiences. And this week, we want to hear from military families and veterans. As President Trump decides if and how he'll reshape our alliances or if and how he'll use our military, you are uniquely affected. So we want to hear from you. Are you comforted or concerned by this presidency so far? Have you made any new life choices based on what the president has said? Call us at 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And I'm curious about what brought you to the military in the first place. Tell us your story. How does the new administration impact your life? And if you're active duty and you don't feel totally comfortable talking about this, you're welcome to call us up anonymously anonymously if you want. 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Or tweet using the hashtag IndivisibleRadio. And I want to start by playing a bit of someone who called up during our first week of this series. He wanted wanted to warn us all against stereotypes when thinking about military families and politics. Listen to Bill from Minneapolis. So I'm I'm, I'm in the military, voted for Hillary, and I I cannot go out in uniform without somebody coming up to me and telling me, tell you a comment thing on how how happy I must be that Trump won and and that sort of thing. (laughs) uh, So definite stereotype about if you're in the military, you voted for Trump. Some truth to that, I would say there was definitely a majority of people in the military that did vote for Trump, but there's plenty of people who didn't as well. And, and honestly, he's my commander-in-chief, I guess. I'm not going to say anything else. But a lot of people in the military that I'm friends with do, did, did vote for Trump, probably a majority. And so you're right, they're not, they're not a racist, they're not a misogynistic. That was Bill calling into Indivisible a couple of weeks ago and bursting a stereotype about military families. And so that's an example of what we're trying to provide here, a place where we all get to hear from people who we perhaps wouldn't otherwise speak with. So this week, again, military families, call us up if you're in the military or have a loved one in the military. Tell us how the Trump era has impacted your life or how you think it may impact your life. 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And veterans, welcome as well. And while your calls are coming in, I'm going to be feeding in some of the perceptions from our network of writers worldwide tracking the president's tumultuous first days in office. And tonight, because foreign policy and diplomacy have real consequences, especially for our service members, 
I want to offer some analysis of the signals that Trump is sending to countries around the world from the aftermath of that raid on al-Qaeda militants in Yemen that some are calling botched, an American death and injuries and many civilians killed, to NATO and the fractious Middle East. Because these are very edgy times. Take North Korea, which has just launched a sizable nuclear missile test, perhaps to test the nerve and the response of the new president. But the big power backdrop that we reflect on in The Economist this week and on the cover is of Donald Trump. It's an image of him having just planted a big kiss on the cheek of a stony-looking Vladimir Putin. And that seems perhaps particularly on point tonight, as it looks like the White House is distancing itself from Mike Flynn as National Security Advisor. Mr Flynn seemed to be going out on a limb on a policy to end sanctions on Moscow, well, just as quickly as he could. Yeah, it, it, he certainly got out ahead of himself, And But Russia certainly also seems like the right place to start tonight. You were a journalist based in Moscow in the 1990s, a time when things were changing rapidly there. And you've got economist reporters in the region now at what is perhaps going to be another big time of change for U.S.-Russia relations. What are you hearing from them about how President Trump is being perceived? I gather you got in touch with one of them this weekend. Well, yes, Kai, that, that's all very true indeed. And Noah Snyder is doing that job in Moscow for us. So I was curious to get his take in the spirit of these indivisible shows, not what people are saying about Russia and Trump from the top down, but how it feels when you've got your ear to the ground and you talk, as Noah does, to civilians, to those involved in conflicts in Ukraine and in Crimea. What do they make of the president's sudden pivot towards Mr Putin? And here's what Noah told me. Well, the main thing uh, that strikes most Russians is his willingness to treat Vladimir Putin and Russia, frankly, uh, with respect and even admiration. Uh, So they have had a series, from their perspective, of American leaders who have derided Russia, who've treated Russia as a loser in the Cold War, uh, who've looked down upon Russia and who've tried to impose an alien Western style of of government uh, onto their country. In Trump, they see a leader Uh, who looks up to to Vladimir Putin, who isn't speaking about uh, democracy, isn't speaking about human rights, isn't uh, rattling on about uh, how things in Russia could be different, but in fact is talking about how Russia and America can get along. And that's quite a change in the frosty official rhetoric that we've heard for years, and it's certainly part of what's shaken things up here on this side uh, of the story. But what is the image that uh, of President Trump that Russians are presented with sort of in the day-to-day, Anne? Well, that's really interesting, Kai, because Russians didn't warm to Barack Obama. It must be said, in part, they didn't think he had much affinity with them or with their traditions. He didn't try very hard as far as they saw it. And Putin has been openly derisive uh, about Mr. Obama. So here comes Donald Trump, and he gets a very different framing in the official Russian media as the real deal. Here's Noah Snyder, our Moscow correspondent we called up earlier. Television also plays a large role in shaping how Russians see the outside world. And Russian television, after bashing Barack Obama for years as weak and and at times overreaching, uh, has taken to fawning over Mr. Trump. They call him a mujik, or a real man, and depict him as a crusading outsider willing to stand up to the American establishment. And for Russians uh, who see the 
American establishment, the, uh, the hand of the American elite at the core of, of many of the world's problems, a figure like Mr. Trump, who's uh, made it his, his mission, as Russian television often portrays, to stand up to them, comes off a bit like a hero. Okay, but I imagine that's Moscow, like Putin's power base, right, and kind of the official media take. But what about the reaction in a place like Ukraine and, and you know, after the Russian military involvement there and the annexation of Crimea, I imagine it's, it's a little different take. It certainly is, and you're right to flag that up. He may be a mujik in Moscow, but Russia isn't the whole story here. Here's our Noah Snyder on Ukraine. Well, Ukrainians, on the other hand, view Mr. Trump with uh, quite a bit of trepidation uh, and, and even disgust in some corners. They fear being abandoned uh, in the midst of his effort, efforts to cozy up to Putin uh, when there's talk of a, a, a big deal to be done between America and Russia. Uh, Ukraine is often seems to be one of the pieces that uh, that America could throw away. And so I was in Ukraine last week traveling throughout the east where fighting has reignited in, in recent weeks. And I was speaking with the head of uh, one of the frontline towns there uh, who brought up President Trump and, and brought up the potential shifts in, in America's stance towards Ukraine uh, and asked quite uh, wistfully, what about American ideals? What about freedom? And I'm wondering if that's a question that chimes with some callers as they figure out where the foreign policy reset leaves them and especially those in military families. This is Indivisible Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Kai Wright with Anne McElvoy from The Economist. And we're taking calls from military families and veterans. Tell us your story as a service member or as part of a military family. How does the new administration impact your life? We've got North Korea. We've got reported turmoil on the National Security Council. The, Can the Canadian prime minister was in Washington today. Lots going on. So call us up. If you're active duty, you can call us anonymously if you want to. 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Or tweet using the hashtag Indivisible Radio. And let's go to callers now. I want to start with Brandon in Kansas City. Hi, Brandon. You're on the air. Hi, guys. I uh, love the show. I've been listening from the start. Uh, here is, is my concern with the administration. Uh, there's been a pretty lax approach to the intelligence community and uh, finished intelligence that is put out. Uh, and there's really been some, some questionable ties, you know, nothing is proven yet, of members of the administration to, to elements of the Russian government. For me, still serving, that's really frightening. I mean, the, true or not, the fact that uh, there's not a vigilance to investigate or disprove by the administration is really, really concerning. And the second piece, still serving, it's really difficult to voice that to your colleagues, um, especially those who were pretty ardent Trump supporters. Brandon, let me ask you about that when you talk about voicing it to your colleagues. I, I you know, so I have not served in the military and I don't have an understanding of what the conversation would be like uh, in, in, in that workplace, right? I mean, we're all kind of talking about the presidency around our water coolers. What is that like as an active duty person? Well, to, to... Remember, the president is the commander in chief. In, in context, in, uh, in uniform, you don't speak against the commander-in-chief. Um, whether it is a valid uh, and nonpartisan criticisms, you, you just don't do it. Uh, you don't do it in a public forum. Um, with colleagues of, of any rank, uh, it, it's, it's a very, very fine line. I mean, you find people 
that you know agree with you, that's one thing, but this has been such a contentious political season that it's really difficult to figure out uh, who thinks what, and, and no one is really, really talking about it, at least in my, in my very limited experience. What about the concern piece that you started with, this sort of just like that, that it scares you as someone who is surveying? Do you guys, is, is, is that part of the conversation at least, the sort of how you guys feel uh, about? It, it, yeah, but you have to kind of dance around it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a very fine line. You you can express concern, but, but you know, it's it's shrugged off or laughed off like aha this is ridiculous uh yeah it's it's tough it, I, again it's only been a few weeks it's only been a few months since the election uh and i've, I've been in the same spot but uh it's it, it in my limited scope it hasn't really been discussed very much well thank you for that brandon uh let's go to constantine who is somewhere in the dc area constantine you're on the air uh Hi. So I am a veteran of the Navy. I got out about a year and a half ago, and I'm in, uh, I'm in college now. And I was planning on pursuing a commission after uh, after getting done with uh, using my GI Bill. But now, since uh, since Trump got elected, I'm maybe reconsidering that because I'm not sure I want to be a part of. Uh, of this uh, of this administration's foreign policy as it's shaping up now, and I think the big difference between him and previous presidents, who have also been very aggressive in their use of uh, American uh, military power abroad, is both President Bush and President Obama uh, that I uh, that I remember seemed to view that with a certain degree of gravity. They they understood the gravity of the situation of sending men and women into harm's way. And Mr. Trump just doesn't seem to view it with the same level of concern and the same level of understanding of the gravity of the decisions that he makes, uh, mm. mainly from the statements that he's made about, uh, you know, the very cavalier statements that he's made about, you know, torturing individuals or uh, bombing the... Uh, something out of uh, ISIS. Constantine, I think that that is is very much something is reflected in the wider world as well as as what you're hearing for yourself. And it's it's really a sense that things are happening without being taken seriously. We saw that with at least the reported version of how that decision on the Yemen raid was taken. There have been lots of of raids which go wrong, half wrong, only get half a a result you can argue about, authorised by all sorts of presidencies. I think what sort of spooked people in the world outside America about this one was that decisions seemed to be taken at a dinner. And the other one was just turning back to Russia for a minute. There are various ways that American presidencies have tried to deal with Russia. This is the great superpower standoff for all of our lives and may well be in the future again. But it is that sense of a policy on the hoof and perhaps the national security advisor may be the first victim of that. He possibly overreached. But it is that sense, I think you know, we reflected on it in, in the calls already, of uncertainty as well as disapproval. And, and I mean, it's and you sort of talk about the, ca- you and Constantine both are talking about the casualness with, with, with 
with which decisions are made. It's again with this dinner last night, uh, or not last night, whenever it was when he was at, when the when the president and, and the and the national security staff were at dinner at Mar-a-Lago uh, as mm. the North Korean missile launched, and people were uh, dinner goers were just watching them to dis- discuss uh, what the response would be. Constantine, I wonder about, is, is that the kind of thing, I guess, that, that unsettles you when you, when you, when you say, oh, well, I'm not going to reenlist? Uh, I, I'm not so sure uh, on the one way or the other, but it's definitely giving me some, some trepidation in that, uh, uh, in that decision. But yeah, it's that uh, basically with previous administrations, you uh, you had a sense that whether or not you got sent into harm's way or what uh, or whatever happened, at least those above you were putting due consideration into it and mm-hmm. wouldn't make decisions just on a whim. Or re- it, it it seemed to have more thought behind it before. Well, thank you for that, Constantine. I'm gonna let you go. Uh, I'm going to go to Beth in Haverton, Pennsylvania. Beth, how are you doing? You're on the air. Hi, I'm fine, thank you. And you? I'm very well. What has been your experience? I have a son who's in the Marines now um, and another one who's in college in RTC who will be in the Marines in about a year and a half. And I'm nervous. And, and, and what, what makes you nervous? Well, I would agree with the last um, caller's comments, but I would add to that that um, the commander-in-chief is not about the individual. It's not all about um, President Trump, and I don't have confidence that he understands that or appreciates that. And I think there are just too many examples of him um, being concerned more about himself and, and his image and where he stands and who's more powerful, who's smarter, who's stronger, who's got more going. And that's, that's not what you want um, in, uh, in the person who makes decisions about all of our troops and, and the, the military uh, interventions that they're involved in. Beth, you have, you have two sons in the military. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a lot of folks in the family. Do you guys have a long history of military service? How, how, how do you end up with two, two sons in the military? Um, no, not really sure. Uh, my, <clears throat> my father was in um, the service uh, World War II in Korea at the end of World War II in Korea, um, and my husband's father was also in World War II. But um, I have one brother who was in the army, and then two boys who decided that that's how they wanted to serve, and they both and signed up for the Marines. How did you feel when they signed up initially? If you're concerned now, how did you feel when when they initially signed up? Oh, well, you know, naturally nervous and concerned for their safety, very proud of them and the decisions that they've made to uh, to, to do this service. Uh, but I'm certainly more nervous now than I ever have been. Well, thank you for that, Beth. Thanks for chiming in. And as you can see, we've got a lot of folks who are nervous out there. Uh, we're going to keep taking your calls. You're listening to Indivisible. We have to take a short break. But keep your calls coming in, 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Or tweet using the hashtag Indivisible Radio. After the break, we're going to talk to Leo Shane, the Capitol Hill Bureau Chief for the Military Times. He's going to join us in the conversation. Stay with us.
Visible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC, I'm Kai Wright. And I'm Anne McElvoy, here from The Economist. We're talking about U.S. foreign policy under President Trump. And while we're doing that, we're asking military families and veterans to share their own life experiences. How does the new, how does the new administration impact your life? Are you comforted? Are you concerned by this presidency so far? Have you made any new life choices based on what the president has said so far? Call us, 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And a reminder, if you're on active duty and you're not totally comfortable having this conversation, you're welcome to call us anonymously as well. 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Five five and the hashtag is Indivisible Radio. And Anne and I are now joined by Leo Shane, who is the Capitol Bureau Chief for the Military Times. He joins us via Skype. Leo, welcome to Indivisible. Oh, thanks for the invite. Glad to have you. So first off, we do have two cabinet confirmations tonight. Stephen Mnuchin is approved as Treasury Secretary, and David Shulkin is now the Secretary of Veteran Affairs. That makes him the first Secretary of the VA who is not a veteran. So, Leo, is that a controversial pick or no? Um, well, you know, it, I expected it to be more of a, a controversy because of that. We're talking about 98 years of history sort of going out the window. But, you know, the veterans groups rallied around this guy. He's the uh, he's a former Obama appointee to head up all of the veterans affairs health programs. Um, so he's someone who, who knows the ins and outs. He's somebody who's worked with a lot of the veterans groups. Um, and the Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill embraced him. He had a, a hundred to nothing uh, confirmation vote. So pretty smooth sailing. And the uh, and the Trump administration has to be happy to see at least one of their cabinet uh, picks go through unscathed. But why, why do you think that is? Why did this one? Why is that the case for this guy? Well, you know, we've we've actually I went back and uh, since the Department of Veterans Affairs got reorganized in 1989, we've we've never had a negative vote against anyone who's ever been put up for the Department of Veterans Affairs. So some of it is just the the position and the and the title. Um, You know, there's not anybody in the Senate who wants to be seen as voting against veterans or standing in the way of, of veterans reforms. But. Uh, but, you know, he's also seen by Democrats as somebody who's going to continue the good work that uh, that Bob McDonald, uh, uh, the, the secretary for the last two plus years, um, he, he's seen as somebody who can continue his good work. Uh, and he's seen uh, from the Republicans as somebody who knows the in and outs as a healthcare exec who can uh, who can reform the, the department. And so that's at least one thing that where we kept with precedent in this administration. Sure, but yeah. It, so it may be the only thing. It may be the only thing, but give us a, give us a sense of that, right? Like, there's we, we keep using this term unprecedented about things, uh, and so from the view of the service member, what is what's brand new and what's not under uh, under President Trump? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is just the uncertainty of, of it all. I mean, we're only you know we're only a few weeks into the uh, into the administration, uh, you know, a few months since he was elected. Um, but, you know, the, the sense that we get from service members we talk to is they, they, they just aren't really sure what to expect. Um, for some folks, that's, that's exciting. For some folks, they say we're finally going to get the handcuffs off that we had under Obama. We're going to be able to engage the enemy, really go after terrorists and uh, really, you know, establish and uh, secure the, the homeland. Um, but for a sizable portion of the military and military families, it, uh, they don't know what it means. They don't know if it means it's going to be more deployments, more fighting. Um, you know, there's been a lot of promises of more money to build up the military, but uh, you know that's going to require Democrats to sign off too. So, uh, so no one's no one's sure. And uh, you know, I think I think more than anything else, what we're hearing from the military is 
the uncertainty is is grading. These are folks who who train hard, who like to see a clear mission ahead of them and, and dive right into it. And, um, you know, right now are, are left with a lot of questions. Leo, I, I'm sure that is true, but I wonder if you get feedback, and I'm also curious as to whether callers will sort of respond to this, that there are some people who think, well, idealism and this idea of very set foreign policy directions set by the White House, very consistently carried through into the military and into the security apparatus, that, that has ended up with a, a lot of interventions. Some people think too many that idealism has cost America blood and treasure and maybe just having a kind of let's bowl along as we go, be a bit transactional, that might not be such a bad thing. Is that something that chimes with you? Yeah, I mean, you know, part part of the issue here is that the military, you know, for a for a block that that shares a lot of the same values and trains hard and and works together as as one team one fight, really politically isn't as as monolithic as a lot of people think. I mean, we we've done polls in recent months to sort of break down where people stand and you know we see a lot of conservatives but we see a fair amount of of liberals in there too so a lot of this depends on where you're coming from some people are hearing you know the 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 simplified trump foreign policy agenda and military agenda and saying great this is going to be this is going to make more sense we're going to go after bad guys we're going to protect good guys and and we're going to we're going to uh, protect uh, the important uh, national security things we should um, other folks hear that and say, boy, there's there's not a lot of details in there. Um, and the limited uh, information they've had has been the travel ban, uh, you know, some of the some of the the rush statements during the campaign about uh, bombing terrorists back to the Stone Age. And and they have a real fear that this is going to mean, you know, more war, more fighting. And, and that means more American uh, blood and treasure. We're going to go to calls, but I want to just uh, read out some of the details of that poll you mentioned. You guys polled 3,000 active duty person, military personnel. 51% said they voted for Trump, but 27% said that having Trump as commander in chief will negatively affect their military job or mission. Among officers, 39% expressed concern, and among women, 55% worry that their jobs will be adversely affected. So, so those are some of the numbers that came out of your poll. Uh, I, I want to go to Chad in Arlington, Vermont. Chad, welcome. You're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Glad to have you. What's been your experience? Um, well, I, I have a very close circle of friends. We're all veterans. We all talk about this stuff. And, and we've all kind of realized that our job isn't to critique um, any policies, but to follow orders and do our job. Like, I would consider it an honor to be able to do my job under order of the president. And I don't know anybody in my group of friends that would disagree with that. Um, but we are pretty confident that Trump picked General Mattis as defense secretary. So mm-hmm. that's kind of like the wheelhouse that we're in that we're happy about the SECDEF. And um, hopefully, if you know, we will get deployed and hopefully we will um, be able to do our job efficiently. And you don't Mattis. have. Chad, and, and some, so some of these, some of the callers we've had, are, you know, are, are expressing concern about the instability and what they'll be, how they'll be deployed, and whether uh, whether the decisions are, are being taken lightly. You don't have any of those concerns about folks in your circle who are, who are currently on active duty. I, I honestly, I have no concerns about it. I know um, my brothers and sisters that I train with. I trust them with my life. I'm sure they trust me with their life. And honestly, I would just consider it a privilege to get deployed again. Well, thank you for your call, Chad. We're going to go to Sarah in Orange County, New York. 
Hi, yeah, Sarah. Hi, Welcome. You? You're on the air. Oh, thanks. Thanks for taking my call. Glad to have you. What's uh, been your yeah, experience? Yeah, so I'm, I'm active duty, and uh, I guess two, two comments. The first is, I know we're talking foreign policy, but I just wanted to say, uh, you know, one of the more alarming aspects was uh, back in, I guess it was October, with the, the now infamous Access Hollywood tape. And I know a lot of people felt that, you know, that was it. That was the nail in the coffin. Uh, obviously, it didn't work out that way. But uh, in terms of implications for military members, you know, for myself as a woman, I just feel like uh, it's incredibly disheartening to feel that with all of the uh, advances that have been made, the opportunities that have been given to women, I've been deployed twice to Afghanistan, um, and that now we are uh, having to to serve under a commander in chief that I, I think, you know, frankly, has made his views pretty clear uh, previously as to how he feels. And so much of our job is based off of trying to build trust, uh, as the previous caller just alluded to. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of lip service paid to that idea still in the military, but um, there's very much uh, locker room talk that continues to take place. And so I just feel like it's, you know, two steps back, um, despite all of the, the wonderful things that have happened uh, with women graduating from Ranger School and, and so on. Uh, and then the other the point that I wanted to make more more related to foreign policy is that, you know, I, I do frankly have those concerns regarding the president's behavior uh, in terms of whether or not he can really appreciate and understand the gravity. I mean, again, the previous caller said that he hoped that he got deployed. I mean, it could be any number of circumstances, but I'll tell you that, you know, that's not something that I wish for. You know, I would like to be home and with my family and and training and building proficiency and all of that, but um, I don't think most soldiers necessarily uh, take that take that obligation lightly. And so I just hope that for our president, he can gain an appreciation that his actions have consequences, and that you know the troops are not really meant to be. Uh, a prop in 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 all of this, uh, and that threats uh, to use force against other countries or in, in other situations is not one that's to, to be taken lightly. Lightly, Sarah, can I ask you? We we were speaking to our caller earlier about sort of how how people in the military talk to each other about these concerns. I'm curious for you in terms of your concerns about his the way he thinks about women and. and how much you talk about that with your colleagues, how much that, how does that conversation unfold, if at all, with, with you and other women in the military? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it continues to be a part of uh, the conversation, whether it's, you know, the number of times that I get called ma'am, uh, as opposed to my peers being called sir by subordinates. You know, there, there's little things that happen throughout the day that, uh, you know, I hate to use the term microaggressions because I just feel like it's so overplayed and has really been devalued. But um, it is what I it is. I still think that for all of the progress that has that has been made with women graduating from Ranger School um, and, and full integration into uh, traditionally all male units, um, nevertheless, you know, there's still many people that you know maybe they're um, maybe they're wise enough to keep some of that conversation behind closed doors, but I don't kid myself about the fact that there's men that don't think that women should should be in the military. And, uh, you know, that's, that's unfortunate. I, I think it takes 
uh, men, frankly, at this point to to um, be advocates because I think, you know, in some ways men are kind of tired of hearing it come from women. They think that it's the same stuff over and over again. But, you know, as I said, I've been deployed. I've been shot at. All of those things um, and I wasn't treated any differently than any man on that battlefield. So or I wasn't treated differently by the enemy, and so I would expect that I would receive equal treatment from my brothers and sisters as well. Thanks for your call, Sarah. Um, Leo, yeah, thank you. I, I want to ask you to comment on several things that, that Sarah said there. Um, one, uh, this uh, idea uh, that that the culture might, Get, I'm hearing the the idea that the culture might get worse for women in the military um, mm-hmm. under Trump's leadership. Is that something you've heard or from other people? Is that part of the conversation at all? Oh, absolutely. There's quite a few advocates who who specifically said this even even before the election was done, because as as the caller said, because of that uh, because of that access Hollywood tape, and and you know it gets down to not just implementing orders and and changing things but really the the cultural leadership that you get um and there's a lot of concerns that if the commander in chief is seen as someone who is uh at best dismissive of of women or, or doesn't see them as equals um will that filter down to to make the changes that the military needs to really uh get women to that that equal status so uh so that's something that we've heard quite a bit not just from advocates but in in our polling and in our in our interviews um you know definitely uh, a lot more uh, a lot more skepticism and a lot more fear from uh from female troops than uh, than from their male counterparts I also wonder about, you know, this is tempting to gender another comment that she made about wanting uh, to not wanting to be deployed. That that's not why she's there. She's not there hoping to be deployed. Uh, and I guess I just want to prompt you to speak about that at all. I, 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 I again, I'm tempted to say that that, that yeah, there's something I, gendered to that, but I, I, I don't want to be reductive. You know, again, this is this goes back to the the issue of of who is the military and what's their makeup. And you know, there's there's a lot of perceptions out there in the country because it is a it is a smaller percentage than it has been historically. You know, during the Vietnam War, everyone everyone knew someone on their block who who deployed, and now we're talking about uh, you know less than ten percent of the country uh, of having having service and even small amount currently serving. So. Uh, so look, there are some there are some people who who are itching to go over there and get rid of bad guys and and deploy um, and uh, and help save the world. And there's lots of folks who uh, who are at the other extreme and are, are pacifists and uh, hope the military never has to be used. And um, you know, I think I think the the caller before uh, Sarah there, um, you know, one important point that he brought up is. Uh, that these folks have a job and do their job. And in all of our conversations, we're not talking about uh, folks uh, folks threatening mutiny. We're not talking about folks overthrowing things. They train hard. You know, they get orders from the commander-in-chief, and they, they execute those orders. They did that under Obama. They'll do that under Trump. Um, but that doesn't preclude them from having having fears and opinions about what's going on. So, um, so no one's saying that these folks won't, you know, if called on to, to defend the country, won't go. But Sure, certainly a lot of them, uh, just like a lot of Americans, are are hoping that there's not a fight. They're hoping that that uh, diplomacy works and that uh, you know we can we can secure the country without uh, without violence. This is Indivisible Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Kai Wright with Ann McElvoy from The Economist, and we're talking we're taking calls from military families and veterans. Call us at 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255 or tweet using the hashtag 
Indivisible Radio. And what about John McCain? I, I, I wonder when we're talking about one of the things that folks have said is that um, you know, we, we keep hearing from callers this question of respect and thinking about uh, how Trump relates to the military. I, it, the, the ongoing feud between Donald Trump and John McCain really continues to blow my mind that anybody from either political party could speak in the way that he has uh, about McCain and his bona fides as, as, as a military, as a veteran, someone who was uh, was a prisoner of war. How is this? Is, is, is this a big deal in military circles or is this just a big deal in our sort of political chattering class circles? No, this is this is certainly one that's that's caught a lot of attention. And right after the first comments where uh, where uh, then candidate Trump uh, made fun of uh, McCain for being a prisoner of war, uh, nearly every veterans group came out and demanded an apology from uh, from Trump. Um, you know, it's this this is one that that only the the hyper partisan uh, most extreme supporters of Trump seem to be on his side for, um, you know, John McCain has. And also, let, let's be honest, Senator McCain gives as good as he gets, doesn't he, in these things. It, it was, a, shall we say, a brave target for, for Donald Trump to pick out. Uh, I'm well, just quite interested, having seen, just very briefly, just seeing John McCain recently, how he's very, very tough on Iran. He's hawkish on Iran in, in that sense, could be even more Trump-friendly, but he is clearly outraged. He's making no secret of the fact that he is outraged about this sucking up to Russia as he sees it and that he thinks it's dangerous, and I suspect that he is going to wage a very long uh, and concerted battle against the president on that. No, absolutely. Look, this I mean, this is just straight up confusing for a lot of folks because they don't they don't see mm-hmm. why there's Indeed. the distance between these two other than uh, other than the fact that Trump keeps taking personal shots at, at Senator McCain. And, uh, you know, there's plenty of, of political fodder if if the two want to fight over that. Um, Senator McCain's more than happy to fight with with uh, both Republicans and Democrats over his records and opinions. But um, but the insistence to go after uh, John McCain's patriotism and his uh, his previous service has, has just left many in the military community completely baffled. You're listening to Indivisible. We've been talking with Leo Shane from the Military Times. We're going to be, still be taking your calls after a break. 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Stay with us. This is Indivisible. The number to call is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. From WNYC Radio, I'm Kai Wright. And I'm Anne McElvoy from The Economist. On Monday nights, we talk about America's role in the world. We've been focusing on President Trump's stance towards Russia, North Korea and the Middle East. We're also taking your calls, calls from military families and veterans about how the new administration's foreign policy might affect your lives. Call us 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. 
And still with us in this conversation is Leo Shane, the Capitol Hill Bureau Chief for the Military Times. I'm going to go straight to the phones here and take a call from Tom in Cary, North Carolina. Tom, welcome to Indivisible. You're on the air. Hey, thanks for having me on. Glad to have you. What's been your experience? Uh, well, you know, I, I was in the military for 10 years. I, I enlisted just prior to the uh, Iraq war breaking out. Um, and, you know, that pretty much made up uh, about the decade that I spent in the uh, military. And so for me, looking at this right now, it's it's obvi- it's it's very uh, nerve wracking. Um, it, it really kind of invokes a lot of the same feelings that I had in, you know, 2002, 2003. And so, you know, I'm seeing a lot of the same things, except I'm not seeing a coherent strategy or leadership uh, in the White House. And and that really scares me because, you know, the further down the chain of command you get, the more uh, fractured things can become when you don't have that top level leadership uh, with the vision that's needed. Tom, I wonder, you know, you say you're an an Iraq war vet and you're remembering that time. Those were also pretty controversial times for uh, America and foreign policy and how we used our military. That was quite a divisive debate over going into Iraq in the first place. I wonder just how you thought about it then. Is this are are we in the same kind of place politically, culturally, uh, or is this a totally different era? Does this does this feel Uh, different? Go ahead. I feel like, it, you know, it's it's somewhat similar, but there's so many other things that have gone on since we first invaded. And one thing that has really, you know, been hard for me to watch, obviously, is what's happened to Iraq. But at the same time, having to listen to these people during the campaign cycle, essentially, for lack of a better term, they were whitewashing everything. And it doesn't seem that any elected leaders want to take responsibility for that decision even though what we see happening now is directly related to that decision to invade. Um, And so I feel like we've kind of expanded uh, the military and our operations around the world to a point where it's so, so there's so much more going on that I feel like that, you know, culturally in this country, it has affected the way we look at not only ourselves and our place in the world, but it also is really affecting the way we, we look at the military, uh, you know, you look at it now versus when those those people were coming home from Vietnam. You know, we're we're lauded as heroes, and we get this great treatment. And I have people thanking me for my service all the time. And the first thing that flies through my head is, do you even know what I did? Mm. And do you even know if I truly agree with that that situation? And so I think in this country we've been bombarded with so many movies and books about things that no one ever really heard about or talked about or wrote about. Mostly on the side of the thing, the special operations community, which has been you know, heavily involved with fighting. So I think we're in a lot different place uh, now than we were then. Interesting. Thank you for that, Tom. Uh, Can we go to Glenn in Haymarket, Virginia? Glenn, welcome to Indivisible. You're on the air. Hey, how you doing, sir? Thank you for taking my my call. Um, As a veteran um, of the Iraq war as well, like your previous caller, um, I've, I'm very nervous for my fellow brothers and sisters in the military right now because I feel that uh, we might be going back into, even though the president has espoused, like, you know, non-interventionist policies, he said that, but with the way, you know, everything's ramping up, I think it might be a continuation of the of Bush policies from before. So, again, um, like, I'm a veteran of the Iraq War, Fallujah, I was a corpsman, medic with the Second Battalion Marines in Fallujah, and um, going through that experience, 
um, really, um, you know, helps you see things in a different light. So, um, again, that makes me nervous for my, I am out now, so that makes me nervous for my, um, you know, fellow brothers and sisters now who might have to, um, some somewhere along the lines be be deployed to a to a spot so um right now yeah i'm I'm really nervous i i can hear that i can hear that even in your your voice and i just wondered is it is your nervousness about a president trump putting boots on the ground irresponsibly you've already you know that situation you know what that can bring but it is it is part of warfare part of the military covenant or is it that he chooses to enter conflicts in other ways? Because that's really still very unsure, isn't it? Whether we mean more fighting on the ground or actually rather less. Yeah, I, I'm really, again, and you hit it right on the head, I'm nervous about boots on the ground. Because, again, when you see um, death and you see um, the anxieties and, and, you know, especially my brothers and sisters coming back, uh, the stuff that we go through um, with war and stuff, um, you're very cognizant. And I, I, want, I want the president to be cognizant of, like, one of your earlier callers saying, to, to not take the decisions lightly uh, and not to use uh, Americans' lives and blood as like it's a common thing. Um, it's very precious. And w with the attitude that he's portrayed and, and he's exuded, I, I don't think that he, he, again, he doesn't know the brevity of what he's doing and the, the preciousness of, of, you know, especially the lives we lost in Iraq and, um, you know, Afghanistan. So I want him to, to, to think twice before he just um, sends people uh, into war. And, like, again, I, I feel that this might be a continuation of, um, you know, interventionist policies and we might find ourselves uh, in more places around the world. So, I would just like to push back perhaps a bit to, towards Leo uh, still with us on that is uh, some people feel, uh, as Glenn clearly does, nervous, unhappy about the idea of, of getting bogged down again. But the world is a dangerous place regardless. And let's, let's look perhaps at what's in that Trump entry, uh, Leo. If you're going to pursue the war against ISIS in Iraq, which he has said is his crucial aim here, how is he going to do that without cooperating with Iran, which it seems that President Trump is not keen to do? He's a big opponent of the Iran deal. How would he even right. go about doing that in a sensible way? Um, that's a that's a great question. And, and so far, we haven't heard uh, a lot of answers on how he'd do that. We've just heard some, some rhetoric in terms of uh, going after them hard, bombing them back to the Stone Age. Uh, you know, one mm. of the things the caller said is that Trump has espoused a, a non-interventionist, uh, you know, uh, um, strategy, and that's true sometimes. But he's also just in the last few weeks said that, um, you know, we we should have kept the oil when we were in Iraq the first time, and we might get another chance at that. So, again, part of the part of the nervousness here is the uh, the fact that that Trump, as a as a very unusual politician, as a very unusual commander in chief, um, seems to contradict himself uh, every every few days and every every few weeks. So, um, so you know, when we're talking about ISIS, what what folks on Capitol Hill, conservatives on Capitol Hill, push for is, uh, you know, some have pushed for uh, increasing airstrikes and and maybe more ground troops and uh, you know maybe and maybe no flies. Oh, well, that would be the moment of truth. 
Well, and and but you know, but we've heard from the president that he wants to significantly build up the the military, but then not commit them to places overseas, and that he's worried about getting bogged down. So, um, so frankly, we just don't we just don't know. We know that he's told uh, Secretary, Defense Secretary Mattis to to come back with plans, and and we're all anxious to see what what those plans will be. You're listening to Indivisible. We've been talking with Leo Shane from the Military Times and taking your calls as military families. We're not hearing from any military families who are excited about this presidency. We've heard a lot of concern. So we're wondering about those of you out there who aren't concerned, who think we're headed in a great direction. We want to hear from you as well. 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Well, as an old Russia hand, I, I can't resist heading back that way. And the situation of Mike Flynn as a national security advisor looks very precarious tonight. The official word is that the White House is evaluating the situation after Mr Flynn did seem to start talks with senior Russian diplomats on ending sanctions off his own bat. Does that kind of switchback approach to security worry people? Is it only military people who are worried by this, Leo? Or do you think it goes perhaps deeper into the machinery of the American state and into the security network? Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, that, that concern spreads spreads well beyond the military. You know, you you mentioned, Flynn, as, as you're on the air here tonight, um, we saw the first Republican on Capitol Hill really come out and uh, and potentially condemn uh, uh, the national security advisor, uh, Representative Kaufman, uh, out of Colorado, just released mm. a statement saying uh, if uh, if, in fact, Flynn purposely misled the president, he should step down immediately. Um, it'll be interesting to see if if we start hearing more of that as more details come out. Does that increase the pressure? And do we start to see, you know, Republicans uh, now start to flip on on some of Trump's advisors? Well, it's also rather, it, it, sorry. Go ahead. It, sorry, I was about to say it's an insecure national security advisor, but Kai. Well, I, I wonder about the um, you know whether Flynn becomes kind of a a, a sacrificial lamb for this whole debate mm-hmm. over the administration's outreach to Russia and Russia policy. Is it, it, it seems like uh, it, it could put this conversation to bed for them. I mean, you know, you could see that in a, in a traditional presidency, but this is not a traditional presidency, and this is this is not someone who you know entered the game late and uh, and is a, is a new addition to to Trump's inner circle. You know, Flynn has been has been with Trump for more than a year now, has been a very trusted advisor, um, and has been someone who has courted controversy all along the way. So. Yeah, in many respects, if if this was a different presidency and this was a, a different uh, advisor, they they may have already been shown the door well before here. But um, but what we've seen from Trump so far is not to expect the uh, the traditional moves. Let's go to uh, some callers here. Fred in Sonoy, Georgia. Fred, you're on the air, and am I pronouncing Sonoy correctly? Oh, it's close enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't be not close enough. How do you say it? Sonoy. Sonoya, okay, great. So yeah. what's been your experience, Fred? Well, uh, I'm a uh, an older fella. I was an infantry officer during the Vietnam War. I had a couple of tours uh, during the war right at the height of the, the fighting. And, uh, you know, I have a lot of uh, memories of that. And uh, one of the things that I remember the most, actually, is that we um, we had a, a company of the 7th Battalion Royal Australian Regiment assigned to, to operate with us on a couple of occasions. These were fine soldiers and great people. They knew how to drink beer a little bit too much, but they were, <laughs> they were terrific men. And uh, 
uh, it concerns me that we have a president that sidles up the people that we have had real trouble with and who are not our friends, like the Russians, uh, and yet he offhandedly and rather rudely treats some of our best allies. Uh, it may not come as a surprise to some people, but I think most Americans don't realize that Australia has sent troops to fight alongside Americans in every war since World War I. They're the only country that has done that. And to treat the Australians the way uh, President Trump has treated them, it's outrageous. These are our allies. What does he expect we're going to do if we get in a shooting match with somebody when we treat our allies like that, and yet we treat people who are potentially enemies uh, like somehow they're long-lost brothers? Uh, I don't get it. It worries me. And uh, it actually makes me pretty angry. Uh, I, I still communicate with some Australians that I, that I serve with. These are great people. <laughs> Why would he do that? Well, thank you for that, Fred. Uh, and and certainly one of the ongoing concerns for folks is what this is going to mean, what, what, what Trump's relationship to all of our allies is, is, is going to be. Uh, the Canadian prime minister was here today. Uh, that all seemed to go well. Um, so, but, but, there, but there is a lot of concern about that. Let's go to Edward in Washington, D.C. Edward, hi, you're on the air. Hi there. Um, I'm, a, I'm a National Guard soldier. Uh, I, I joined kind of late. I was in my 30s, uh, but I joined the National Guard before 9-11, uh, did an active duty tour, and then I've, I've come off of active duty. I'm back in the National Guard, um, and, and I, have a couple of, I have a couple of things. I mean, the first is I'm actually delaying my retirement. I'm supposed to retire in the next, uh, next few years. Um, and, and to be quite blunt, I, I really don't want this person's name on my retirement certificate. Um, oh, wow. I'm a lifelong Republican. I joined the Republican Party when I turned 18. I've consistently voted Republican, uh, with the exception of President Obama. And um, this year, after the convention, I contacted the, the, my local party and revoked my membership. Um, I just felt like with, with this nomination and with this administration that the party no longer represents the things that I, I find important, both socially and in terms of my service. Um, so I, it's, oh, go it's ahead. just lis listening to that and, you know, that sense of, of disappointment, but also the confusion that a lot of people feel about when the military and beyond who've been very loyal Republicans. But I, I did wonder a bit, Edward, I mean, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of American policy shift around uh, over the years. I've certainly you know, covered wars and interventions, whether Democrats or Republicans were in the White House. The military has been loyal, has has always carried out its its constitutional role. I'm just going to play devil's advocate for a moment and say, is there a danger here of everybody picking off the things that they are particularly allergic to and that somehow the, the American military, which takes on such a lot of responsibility in the world, will continue to do so and that on balance it will still be a good thing? You know, and, and you're right, and I, and I want to reflect what a lot of the callers have already said. When it comes down to it, we're, we're going to do our job. Um, ultimately, we, we serve something higher than, than even the, the commander-in-chief. You know, we serve the ideal of what the United States is uh, and what it means to us and what our country means to us. Um, we serve for the people that are, you know, in the truck with us or, or um, you know, so it's, it's, it's bigger than 
than any one person. It's bigger than who actually happens to be in charge of policy at the time. Um, just with this current administration, I really, I really don't get the feeling. It makes me very nervous because I don't feel like they understand a lot of the nuance with foreign policy. Even, even when there were policies that came out that I, I may personally not have agreed with, I at least felt like they understood something deeper is going on or they had a, a goal in mind mm -hmm. that was deeper than just what was on the surface. Mm -hmm. And so it made it easier for me to say, okay, well, I don't really agree with this, but I'm going to, I'm going to drive on because that's my mission and those are my orders. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that, Edward. Uh, let's have one last call here. David in Western Virginia, you have, a, 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 you're going to get the last word. You got to sneak it in really fast. Great. I was just going to say, I support uh, intervention in Iraq and putting more troops on the ground. I'm a 20-year military vet. I've got three tours overseas, and I consider myself a professional soldier. And and so you say, let's 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 keep at we it. We could let's have saved here. thousands of lives. We could have saved thousands of Iraqi lives if we had started intervention years ago. And so, do you feel good or are concerned about the Trump presidency? Given I, feel, I, I hope he I hope he increases the level of intervention. There are thousands of people dying daily in Iraq. And we could have, if we had inter intervened as the strongest military in the world, we would have saved thousands of lives by now. Well, thousands. And this would be over, and we, we'd, be in re we'd be reconstructing them by now. Thank you for that, David. So as you can see, uh, there are at least some folks who are excited to, uh, to, to maybe get some more combat, though I, I don't know, as you pointed out, Anne, that it, there may be actually less combat under a President Trump. We shall we'll see. see. Leo Shane is the Capitol Hill Bureau Chief from the Military Times. Thanks so much for joining us, Leo. Anytime. Appreciate it. You have been listening to Indivisible. This is a new public radio conversation airing four nights a week on stations all over the country for the first hundred days of the new administration. Tomorrow on Indivisible, WNYC host Brian Lehrer takes stock of the first 25 days. He'll ask whether Trump is challenging not just old policy, but policies, but basic American norms. Plus, Death, Sex, and Money's Anna Sale joins us. I'm Kai Wright. And I'm Anne McElvoy. Talk to you next week. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.